Turn your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And if you're with me, say, I am. I am. A little, 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 little camp reference. Ephesians chapter 1. We will get there in a moment. It is, I, I, I am so thankful to be here. Oh, hey, Jenny, can you bring me that tea? Camp has been great. Camp has been a wonderful experience. And as you can tell, my voice is not what it was before we left. So we got some warm tea with some honey in it. Thank you, sweetheart. It's all right. Ephesians chapter 1, and we will be there in a moment. First off, though, this message is titled Providence and the Will of God. We will take time discussing, examining, and really dealing with providence and what it means. Now, before we go any further, before we actually get into it, I was thinking about the providence of God, and that sounds like a really fancy church word, really fancy Christian word. Um, and it is actually, in fact, a, bio, a word that you will not find in the original texts of the, of the scriptures. It is a word that is produced through, through Latin terminology to help us understand more about the scriptures, the same way in which you will not find the word trinity in the scriptures. You will not find the word incarnation in the scriptures, though those two things are very present and very evident in scripture. So to understand a word that is not specifically utilized in the biblical text, we must understand the connotations, the things that they mean, the thing that it implies, and build not around the word, but the word be built around what the text says. First time that we see this issue of providence, the actual Latin translation is pro vide. Um, we take lots of vides, we just don't know it. They, we, we usually add an O at the end of it, which is called a what? A video, a video. So it's, a, it's the Latin word to, to see. Pro is pretty, pretty self-explanatory. It's a, it's a prefix, which means before. So if you were to take the word literally and not examine it against what the scriptures truly and accurately teach... It would, uh, you would say that if God is a God of providence, that means he sees things before they happen. And again, if you use the scriptures to be built around that word, you would be greatly mistaken. Because providence is not a word built around scripture. Scripture is what informs providence. Yes, God does see things before they happen, but it is not because he is reactionary in any sense of that word. He in no way is a responsive God. He is a pro proactive God. He is not reactive. He is proactive. Providence, this, the, the, understand, the biblical teaching that God sees things before they happen is because he has already ordained them to be. And they have no other ability. They have no other response than to do that which he has ordained things to be. So that is a preliminary position, and we will be in actually Ephesians 1 for the majority of the time. We're going to sing about this great I am. We're going to sing about the providence of God. And if you don't understand the providence of God by the end of this, please come talk to me at the end because we mess it up so much. We mysticize it. We turn it into God being the ultimate fortune teller with a cosmic crystal ball and our futures hang in the balance of how well or how poor we are at following and obeying this God. Christian in this room, unbeliever, that is not who God has revealed himself to be. That is who we make him to be. Everything we know about God has to be built around how he has said how and what he has said of himself. So before we go into our texts, 
There will be many of them. I encourage you to write them down. I do not have a PowerPoint. No offense, I was a little preoccupied this week with a, with a group of awesome people that are wearing this brightly mint-colored shirt. Um, it was a wonderful week. Thank you so much for praying for us. And I do not one bit think that it was not a part of God's providential plan. Sorry, Miss Sammy. Not a part of God's providential plan that she got sick last week. And in our human plans, hindered them from going to Circe. But as we'll see here in a minute, it was actually part of God's plan the entire time. Not to emphasize me. Not to emphasize pastor. Not to emphasize any of us but to call attention to the greatness of our God. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, holy is your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma City, in the people of Graceway, as it is in heaven. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. For thy is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Open our hearts and our minds this morning that we may behold your glory, that we may be in agreement with Zechariah 9.17 for how great is your goodness and how great is your beauty. In your name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. amen. The issue of providence is perhaps uh, a, a very neglected, very misunderstood concept, um, mainly because of the world in which we live is not short on feelings about God. You can honestly probably go up to anybody, family, friend, stranger, coworker, and ask them about God, and they will give you some sort of an answer. It's either, yes, I believe in him, no, I don't, or anything else in between. A lot of people have lots of opinions about God. Very rarely, though, do you meet somebody who actually bases those opinions upon what Scripture says. It is refreshing when you do, and it is not something that we need to just be skeptical of all people, but we do need to understand when we talk to people about who God is that we need to m verify and consolidate our understanding of things through Scripture. I met a man yesterday on the way back from camp. Actually, we stopped to get some gas and didn't have a whole lot of time. He was a scout leader. Uh, they had a, a camp with a whole bunch of Eagle Scouts and Cub Scouts uh, for the week. Um, so uh, it didn't rain all that much, so hopefully their tents stayed relatively dry. But I asked him. He came over, introduced himself. He saw a whole bunch of vans just at this gas station. A lot of them said Baptist Church on the side of them, like ours does. Asked, uh, what's going on? Are you guys here for a camp of some sort? And I told him, yeah, we're, we just finished a, a church camp with, uh, with several other churches. And obviously, he, our van was the thing that gave us away. His full Eagle Scout leader garb is what gave him away. His name was Scott. I don't know that because I'm not a fortune teller. It's literally because it was pinned on his name, on, on, his, on, his, on his shirt. I said, so Scott, uh, do you go, he, what are you doing? How, how, how is camp? That kind of thing for him. He walked away. I gassed up, and gas was taking a little bit longer than, than usual, and uh, he came back to throw some trash away, and I thought, I'm just going to ask him. I said, Scott, do you, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? His response to me to, to that was, it wasn't, uh, shut up and don't talk to me about that. It wasn't that. Very rarely will you get that. You'll, you'll get that at some point as the, uh, the odds increase, as the more people you talk to. His response simply was, yes, in my own way. Okay. I don't have a whole lot of time to, to, to really get into it. He's getting his troops back in, into the van. I just asked him, do you go to church anywhere in this area? He said, no, I haven't been to church in a long time. And I could feel the, the tension building to where he was wanting to pull away. He knew what was about to happen. And I flipped it. I flipped it on him. And he was, he was so thrown off. I didn't go into, I'll, I'll be honest, I did not go into the gospel at that moment. 
I simply asked him, is there anything I can pray for you besides safe travels back home? And he was, I'm not gonna say stunned. It wasn't like he fell backwards gasping. He didn't tell me to pray the prayer. I just wanted to know, is there anything I can pray for you about? Pray for your, your troops. I'm thankful that God made sure that you guys were all safe and, health, and healthy at the end of the week, the same way that our students are safe and healthy at the end of the week. He said, actually, you know, I'm, I'm good. Um, just safe travels, I think. And that was the end of our conversation. Wasn't much, wasn't long. Took about two or three minutes. But to believe in the providence of God is to see all things not as accidents, but as intentional occurrences, things that happen. And yet our world, and frankly, many Christian churches, many Christian people, try to mystify God's providence. One of the, one of the ones recently that has been the most uh, concerning in, in terms of trying to understand how uh, the providence of God and all things work intentionally, because purpose underlies intention. Doing things with intention means to do things with purpose. It is not a modern day invention or a contemporary concept to contemplate even the infinite existence of multiple universes. Just ask any Marvel fan. The idea that there are multiple existences, that you can be the same you, but there is an infinite number of you. And despite blockbusting premieres of global proportions, special effects that could put a spectator right in the midst of a fantastical storyline, and high-grossing revenues that could seemingly end world hunger, these films present a false presupposition of reality that runs contrary to the Christian worldview. No matter the cultural or historical setting, to affirm infinite realities or any other worldview that denies exclusively not just God himself, but the God of Scripture, Anyone who denies the triune God of Scripture reduces the value and the purposefulness of created life that was bestowed by that very God to its most logical conclusion of meaninglessness. To believe in a God who is not in charge of and has ordained all things is to live in constant fear of am I truly fulfilling my purpose in life? It has not been a new concept, but a generation is being raised to the point to where no longer are they being identified through the families that they have or the faith that they have. They are identified through their work. And it's a wonderful thing to see young people wanting to work and to work hard and to commit themselves to what they love and are passionate about. But what happens when that desire, when that goal, when that feeling, you may see this yourself, what happens when you don't get that job? What happens when you're unable to work? What happens when you're not able to retire at the age that you want to? Is it all meaningless? Because if we identify ourselves through what we do and through our own presuppositions, our own established ideas about who God is and about what life is all about, then you run the risk of killing yourself through meaninglessness. The providence of God is perhaps one of the more neglected doctrines of the last century because of how misunderstood and mystified it is. Myriads of attempts have been made to explain the reason behind what goes on in the world and why things happen the way that they do. You can ask any, any person, is there evil in the world? And unless you've been living under a rock or in your own separate commune, as though uh, you're, you're a separatist colony, there's not one person who would say, no, everything's good. In fact, if you do run into a person who says, no, everything's good, they might be the one who is involved in said evil activities. Whether all things were programmed by some cosmic being who no longer has any involvement in the world, which is what some, many, many believe, or maybe it's the byproduct of some random natural process, processes, Humanity has been suppressing the truth for generations, which has led to cosmological confusion and purposeless relativism. It just depends on what you believe. It just depends on who you are. It depends on what matters to you. 
I'm not saying that there isn't passion and purpose for those who don't believe in God, there is. But to what extent and to what end? Much of this has to do with the misunderstanding of key terms and the redefinition of historically biblical concepts. What was once considered common knowledge throughout generations of church history because of the emphasis on biblical and experiential theology flowing from the fountain of scripture it has been lost due to the demise of biblical literacy and the astronomical rise of human sentimentality. It's what I feel. It's what I want. It's what I think. It's my opinion about the things. America stands as a very unique country throughout all human history. But if you think back to some of the, some of the great, some of the worst empires in the world who had a dominant king governmental structure. When the king said something, it got done. The king didn't need to send out a large, massive uh, voting system to determine what you thought about the matter. Now, I'm not saying that America is founded on unbiblical things. It is wonderful to live in a country to where we are able to pursue religious freedom and where we are able to understand that my life has value. But in the centuries before us, when the master said it, the people did it, or they faced the consequences. If you had a good king, it was good. If you had a bad king, it was bad. But we stand as Christians united under the banner of a good king. But our misunderstanding of who God is led by our feelings or by our thoughts about him, leads us to understand that unless God acts, unless God does what, he, what I think he should do in the time that I think he should do it, then he's really not that good. This is deeply rooted in prioritizing what one feels as the highest authority by which all things are to be measured. Rather than what God has revealed in his word, the first time we see this notion of providence, the word, uh, the, the, the true root word there is provide, is Genesis 22, if you go to Genesis 22 with me. Genesis chapter 22, if you are familiar with your Bible, if you're familiar with this portion of Genesis, we have come to Abraham and Isaac. This is not a self-serving, self-promotion. This is literally the first place that we see this notion of providence and providing Genesis chapter 22, God has already made the promise to Abraham that through him, that through his seed, through the seed of Sarah, will come many nations. God had made a covenant with Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, leading to the nation of Israel, to be a light to the other nations, in fact. Now, Abraham got a little frustrated because what he thought in his timing, his desire for what he wanted God's providence to be like, he took matters into his own hands. He said, I got to help God out a little bit. Anytime you read scripture where somebody maybe not verbally says, I got to help God out, but tries to do it their own way and not in the way that God has already established, it never turns out well. There's a man named Uzzah in the book of Judges. He sees the ark beginning to topple over reaches out his hand because he's going to help God out. Even though God says, do not touch it, you are not worthy enough to touch it. And even though maybe he's trying with a good motive, maybe a good intention, I don't know, to reach out and to help God out by catching the ark from falling and touching the ground, who knows how the story ends? Struck down dead immediately. God says, I don't need you to help me. The valley of dry bones in the book of Ezekiel. He doesn't ask the valley, do you want my help to put you back together? He says, no, I'm, gonna, I'm going to do this. I'm going to draw you back to life. I'm going to then breathe my life into you. He didn't ask Abraham, are you willing to let me sacrifice your son? Are you willing to let me co command you to sacrifice your son? There is no, in, there is no back and forth dialogue here. The master said it, a faithful servant does it. So that's where we see in Genesis chapter 22. 
We're going to skip down to verses 6 through 9. Verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. He took his hand, the fire, and the knife. So they went and both of them together. And as Isaac said to his father, Father, he said, Here I am, my son. Isaac says, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? It was clouded in, it was clouded in confusion for Isaac. But Abraham knew exactly what was about to happen. Let's continue reading. Abraham said, God will provide. He will provide. For he, he will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them together. Abraham's faith was in God. Isaac's faith was in Abraham. We know how the story goes. When we get there, no lamb, no offering. Abraham and his son. And as Abraham lays his son on the altar, about to take the life, about to take the life of the one that God had promised through your wife Sarah will come many nations. Behold, off to the side. Verse 10, then Abraham reached out his hand, took the knife to slaughter his son, but the angel of the Lord called from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, to which he responded, here I am, here am I. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything else to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham was at risk of compromising all that God had done by putting his faith in his son more than faith in the one who gave him his son. And behold, verse 14, Abraham called the name of that, or sorry, I skipped over it. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. So they took the, took the ram, sacrificed it in, in place of Isaac, and God provided Ephesians chapter 1, the main text where we will be this morning. Starting in verse 3, all the way through verse 14. If you're with me, say I am. Thank you. Just making sure. Verse 3. There's two things I want you to know before we start reading this. If you're a person who believes in writing in your Bibles, which there are mixed reviews about this, it's not necessarily something that is mandated, but it's also, I understand, those who do not want to in order to preserve the, the quality of their, of their scriptures, their copy of the scriptures. If you are, though, I, I would like for you to either in your scriptures, in your Bible, or on a notepad, mark down every time in these, in these 12, 12 verses the amount of times that God is referring to himself as the triune God. It will be a lot, and it will sound very repetitive because I wonder why he wants us to know who is in charge. The other thing I want you to know is that Paul, who wrote this, verses 3 through 14, this may not be new to some of you, but I, I geek out over biblical you know, fun statistics, that kind of thing. In the original language, this is one sentence. And we're going to see how it flows so magnanimously to reveal to us who God is, what he is like. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ 
according to what he saw beforehand? No. According to the purpose of his will. Let's continue. Not only to the purpose of his will, but to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, with which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This is according to his purpose which he has set forth in Christ as a, plan, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, not how you feel. Things in heaven and things on earth, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be again to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Thirdly, to the praise of of his glory. Can I get an amen? There is an old catechism, a, a way in which to teach uh, normally young children, but it can be used for, for anybody, but is referred to as the Heidelberg Catechism of 1563. It was a Reformation-era teaching method to intertwine systematic with experiential theology. What Scripture says, here's what I'm going to do because of it. It says this about providence. Providence is the almighty and ever-present power of God by which God upholds, as with his hand, heaven and earth and all creatures. He also rules them that every leaf and blade, rain and drought, fruitful and lean years, food and drink, health and sickness, prosperity and poverty, all things, in fact, come to us not by chance but by his fatherly hand. We can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father, that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. That explanation would be meaningless without the text of Scripture being the foundation of it. How many times does God refer to himself just in this text through the Apostle Paul about how he is the one in control. Over, over 15 times, over and over again, showing how it is him in the beloved, in Christ, as he has chosen us before the foundation of the world. He does not react. Earlier we talked, I uh, mentioned how providence is not a word that you will find in the scriptures, but it is very clearly taught throughout it. So too with the omni-statements of God his omniscience, his omnipresence, his omnipotence, his omnibenevolence, the fact that he is all good, all powerful, all knowing, and everywhere. I was gonna say all present, I don't know if that exists. He is everywhere. Dr. Robert Smith Jr. says that God's omnipresence is that when he moves, he bumps into himself. But these foundational definitions of providence have been lost due to our desire to contextualize and humanize God. Psalm 50, verse 20, 21 says, you do, you do wrong by thinking that I am in any way like you. He is not. His standard of goodness is not our standard of goodness, and yet he has shared with us the ability to discern what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is not. Anchored firmly in God's divine providence and in his divine sovereignty lies the basis of the Christian's security and assurance. Another man, another well-known theologian and author named Joel Beakey, 
says that this very notion of God's providence is what provided Christ while on earth with supernatural comfort and security in his final hours as he awaited the betrayal of his closest friends, the crucifixion of the Romans, and most importantly, the wrath of his, all heavenly, of his heavenly father being poured out upon him fully for the punishment of sin. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. That is Hebrews chapter 12. What was the joy set before him? We are a byproduct of that joy, but the true joy set before him was the glory of his father. We get to receive the benefits We get to receive the accomplished work of God through Christ as we repent of our sins and put our faith and trust in him alone. And he has chosen to do it this way. He has chosen to intimately interact with his creation. The infinite God who is omnipresent, omnipotent, all of these different things stepped down out of the heavenly realm into human flesh. These things that we know are taught explicitly through the text of Scripture. For the Lord Jesus Christ to find security and comfort in the all-sufficient sovereign plan of his Father, of God, it it is certainly reasonable for us to do the same. There are some important definitions that we have to understand when it comes to the providence of God, the first of which is known as God's decreative will, or also referred to as his concealed efficacious will, which means everything that happens because God has chosen in eternity for it to happen. The omniscience of God, the fact that God is all-knowing, does not fuel his power. It does not fuel that which he does in the world. All that God knows, which is all things, is because he has chosen and ordained it to happen. For it to be reversed means that there are certain things that he needs to respond to. Why do we need a God who doesn't respond? Because that means that there is some, as one man said, R.C. Sproul, there is some maverick molecule in the universe, and if he does not have control and supremacy over all things, if there is one random maverick molecule somewhere out there, rebellious atom that exists outside of the control of God, he no longer gets to be God. That's the comfort and the security of praying to a God who is in control. If we pray to a God who is not in control, if we pray to a God who is dependent upon our choices and us giving him permission, then he is at our mercy. And how in the world can we pray to a God who is not able to override the will of another simply out of his desire to show them love and give them their own autonomy? He's willing, if that is the case, he is willing to damn these people for all eternity so that he won't violate their will. Ephesians chapter 2, right after this, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. What can a dead man do? Can these bones themselves, out of Ezekiel 36, can these bones come alive? Can they restore the ligaments? Can all the tendons reattach themselves simply by giving God permission to do so? No, we need him to do it. And the beautiful thing is that God chooses to do it because of his goodness, because of his mercy. Genesis chapter one, verses one through three, no better place to go to than to see the decreative will of God on display because he did not need to create anything. To know God is to know that he is sufficient in and of himself. He needs nothing. And yet Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created. One of the most beautiful things, in my opinion, out of Genesis 1 is when it gets to the point to where he's creating the sun, the moon, and the stars. Do you know how much attention he gives to the stars? The constellations, we got a chance to, to see them probably brighter than some of them have ever seen. Camp, there's, there's very little light when it gets dark enough, and if you go to a dark enough area, you can see uh, we even got to see the, the small edge of a galaxy band off to the north. It's beautiful. But this God who has hung all the stars in, in, in their place, 
who can, as he says to Job, as he reveals to Job, I can loose the cords of Orion, which is a constellation. He holds the Pleiades, a, a constellation that has been discovered and able to be viewed through the Hubble telescope. You can actually Google, don't know do now, you can actually Google the Pleiades constellation. He holds all these things. In fact, it, it goes on to say that he can measure the universe in the span of his hand. This is not what science confirms. This is what the scriptures teach. This is what God teaches of himself. And in the midst of all this, he has decreed all things. These stars get about five words, maybe less than the original Hebrew, but I don't speak Hebrew. It says that when it gets to the stars, in Genesis chapter one, it says he created the stars also. And that's it. Do you know how much time he spends revealing his will for those he creates on a small, insignificant planet known as Earth? An entire chapter. And not only an entire chapter, but more importantly, he does to mankind what he does not do to anything else. He speaks everything else into existence to set the stage for his most prized possession, his most prized creation. It's the Hebrew word yatsar. I can't say that because I had to Google it. Found a couple books that confirmed it, so you know, don't, don't trust what you see on Google, but find good sources to, to confirm things. It's the Hebrew word yatsar, which is the, 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 the idea and the, the meaning that a master potter creating a masterpiece out of a dumpy lump of clay. And God begins to form man. And not just form him and work on him. He breathes his own life into him. And he becomes a living, a living being. That is the distinction. That is God's will to separate us from all things. Yes, we are connected to the, the creation because we are created. But we have something far greater in the providence of God. We bear his image. You bear his image. Each and every person, horizontally speaking, every person is worthy of value, dignity, and respect and love. Vertically, though, we get it mixed up because we want to be God. Even though he is, the, he is the prime source of our life, we think we can do it better. We are conceived in sin, as, as Psalm 51 says. We inherit sin, as Romans 5 tells us. Do you know why all these things take place? Do you know why God has ordained all these things to happen? To the praise of his glorious grace. And that may conflict with your experience. But being a messenger of God, and this is something that I have to remind myself over and over again, is that my experience does not trump the truth of Christ's word. But Christ's word helps me to navigate and understand my experience. And even though I may not get to understand what's going on now, I believe in a God who is in control of all things, who has providence, but just don't ask me in the midst of the darkness that I experience. I'm not going to ask you in the midst of the darkness that you experience to be able to exegete Ephesians chapter 1 perfectly and be completely content. No, we have to do what Job says. Job 42 enhances this understanding of God's providence. Job 42, after he has had this back and forth with his friends, after losing all things, in fact, if you were to go back to Job chapter one to understand providence as well, God sought, or God gave Satan permission, not the other way around, God gave Satan permission to do these things to Job. Is it because God is narcissistic and vindictive and evil? No to the praise of his glorious grace. And Job was a man who continued to remind himself of it, but he was human. James 5.17, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. Job was a man with a nature like ours. Mary was a woman with a nature like ours. We are created fallen beings. We need to be reminded over and over again of who God is and what he has said there's nothing else, nothing more. Everything else is just add-ons. Everything else, as my wife says, is just sprinkles. 
They look nice, but they don't really add anything to the actual thing. I love donuts. I'm okay with them with, with sprinkles. But it's just add-ons. It's just extra. No, the core of what is being taught here is Job 42, verse 1. I know that you can do all things. Job lost his family. Job lost his, he didn't lose his wife, so if that tells you anything. Job lost his family, lost his, lost his kids, lost his home, lost his ability to, to, to make money through the, the, the many cattle that he owned, was afflicted with many sores, many boils, and yet at, the, at some point he reached his breaking point. He called out to God, why is this happening? Do you know what his response was earlier before he gets to Job 42? God's response earlier to him in Job 38 was, where were you? Where were you, Job, when I set the foundations of the world? Where were you when I hung the stars in the sky? Like a father speaking direct but not harshly with Job, he gives him exactly what he needs to hear. Dress for action. Like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Who shut the sea with the doors when it burst out from the womb? When, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? Verse 28. Has, does the rain have a father? Who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth? Verse 31. Can you bind the chains of the Pleiades? That constellation I mentioned that Hubble has discovered. Can you loose the cords of Orion? Verse 36. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts? Who has given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Can you hunt? In verse 39. Can you hunt the prey for a lion? Chapter 30. Do you know why the mountain, why the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the, the calving of those, of those does? Can you do all of these things? To which Job responds in humble worship to God. 42 verse 1, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I do not understand. This is everyone who has felt the darkness of life and has called out to God with things they do not understand. Question God about things they do not understand. It is normal. But the amazing thing is not that Job is having these questions about the darkness that he is experiencing. The amazing thing is Job 38 God spoke to Job. Job had no right. Job had no, no foundation to question God. None that truly stood. Now, I'm not saying it's, not, it's, it's, it's always wrong to question God. It is natural. It is within the way that God built us to understand and to experience the emotions of life to be able to arrive at those conclusions. But the emphasis of Job is not about Job's complaints to God. The emphasis is about how God spoke back to Job. How God speaks to you and to me. And he has spoken in Ephesians chapter 1 that he does all things to the praise of his glorious grace. This is his decreative will. There are things that he does we don't get to understand fully why. To understand fully why he does these things is to be God. We don't get to do that. The second thing is known as God's perceptive will or his revealed will. So many people struggle with knowing what is the will of God. First and foremost, 
It is this. If you want to know the will of God, get into his word. There are plenty of places where he has made it very evident as to what the will of God is. In fact, he does so, he does so kindly with us as to tell us what the will of God is. Let me give you a couple. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers, as we ask you, we urge you in the Lord Jesus that you have received from us how you ought to walk and how to please God. Just as you are doing that, you do so more and more. Sorry. For you know that the instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus Christ, for this is the will of God, your sanctification, to abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and in honor. Later on in the same book, chapter 5, verse 16, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it is to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover for evil, but living as servants of God. Same book, chapter 3. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of those who cause you to suffer, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Lastly, there are several more, but I don't have the time for them. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world is passing away with its desires but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That which God has explicitly given to us to understand about him, about how to live life. Second Peter teaches us that we have all that we need in turn as it relates to life and godliness. So I'm gonna say this because I believe this is the foundational statement as based upon the scriptures. For the, for the true born-again believer, hear me say this, for the true born-again believer, unless you are outside of God's revealed will of his scriptures, doing that which you should not, or not doing that which you should, the will of God is actually quite simple. Live in his freedom not as an excuse to, to do evil, but to live in freedom outside of trying to live your life in such a way to where you are constantly fretting, is this the will of God or is this not? I am speaking to genuine born-again believers who have repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in him, and have been sealed with the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. Live your life to the glory of God. That is his will. That is his will for you. The evidence is outstanding. Back to Ephesians chapter 3. We see this as the way that he has explained to us that the providence of God is revealed to us through also how we are saved. I'll finish with this. The providence of God validates and vindicates the doctrines of grace. Not because the reformers were so clever as to come up with them, but because that is what God has chosen to reveal of himself about how he saves us. The doctrines of grace are to believe in what's known as radical corruption. Sovereign election. Definite atonement. Effectual grace. 
in the preservation of his people. You may know them as different acronyms, T-U-L-I-P. Many people have mixed feelings towards those letters. But the true biblical teaching of those things is that we are radically corrupt, each and every one of us. Total depravity does not mean that you are as evil as you could possibly be. It means that there is every bit of us tainted by sin. We are wholly and entirely corrupt. Some people act that out more than others. But even the smallest white lie is cosmic treason against God. But we also believe in sovereign election, that according to his providence, and according to what he has already determined, that he has shown love and mercy to his people. If you believe in the Israel of the Old Testament, Isaiah says that God refers to Israel as mine elect. You cannot run away from this concept. It is all over the place. Just reading, these, this, just reading this one sentence out of Ephesians, we see that God is in control. He's in control of our salvation. We need him to be in control because a dead person can't choose God. By his goodness and by his mercy, he brings us through the preaching of his word, through the, through the hearing of his word, to faith in him. And this faith is accomplished by the definite atonement Many people will struggle with limited atonement as though it's not, a, it's not powerful enough to do all that it was, it was determined to. That's why definite atonement might get you a little bit more leeway with some people. It's limited in the sense that not all people get to go to heaven. I'm sorry, but scripturally, according to God, that is not the case. And it's not because we figured it out and they didn't, but because all of us are monsters of iniquity. We are radically corrupt and we desire that which we desire but according to the definite atonement of Christ, paying the full payment of sin on the cross, 2 Corinthians 5.21 exists as a promise and as a guarantee for those who have called out to him, repented of their sins, put their faith and trust in him alone for salvation, that he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become his righteousness. This is what's known as effectual grace, that all who God has chosen will come to himself. We don't get to know who, who, who is or who will. That's not our place to understand because that, again, is according to the secret will of God. That's what it means to be God that he knows, but we don't get to. What we get to be involved in, Christian, is to be able to share the good news with everyone that we can. To be a light to others. But your, your life your testimony is not the gospel. Revelation chapter 12 tells us that we will overcome the enemy. We will overcome in the last days by the blood of the lamb first. And by the word of our testimony. Your testimony is not the gospel. They need something greater. As amazing as you probably are, they need something greater because they are radically corrupt. God is sovereignly electing those who are his. He has given Christ as the definite atonement, one and done, nothing more. No more sacrifices need to be made. It was all pointing to him. Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice was pointing to Jesus. He is the fulfillment of, he is in every way what we could never be. This is going to sound Christmassy. When Jesus fled with his mother and Joseph to Egypt, what does it say after King Herod died? He came back out of Egypt. Why? Just because he needed to relocate? No, but because Israel failed. And out of Egypt I have called my son in every way Israel failed, in every way you and I failed, Jesus never did. This is the effectual grace of God that all he has purposed will come to pass, and we get to be included in that. Upon hearing the word of God to repent of your sins, to put your faith in Jesus and Jesus alone because of the great love and mercy that he has for you, which leads to the fifth one that he will preserve his people. 
He will cause them to endure. He will not cause them to escape tribulation. He will not cause them to escape hard, hardships. He will not cause them to escape suffering. But instead, his promise is to be right there in the midst of it. To be right there. Because how else can you know the depth of God's love and mercy and grace until you are in the fire? And Jesus is right there. The Spirit of God is there. Christian, please do not mystify God's providence. Do not misunderstand his will. Jesus said very clearly in John 14, 15, and 16, anyone who loves me will do the will of the Father. Those who love God follow his word. I think about my life being represented right now in two major stages. My parents are here. If it had not been for the providence of God, going the places that we, living the places that we lived, experiencing the things that we experienced, I thank God for His providence. Because I'm standing here in the second phase with my wife, my beautiful children, these wonderful people, these wonderful students. My heart desired nothing of God. And I'm so glad that his providence doesn't depend on my receptivity to it. I'm so glad that his, his call of my life to repent of my sins and put my faith and trust in him is, is not something that he, he counseled with me about. Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth and the glory and the riches of God. How unsearchable are his judgments? How inscrutable are his ways? Who is there that can give counsel to him? Who is there that can repay him for what he has done? But for him, through him, and in him are all things forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, in this time of response, not a response of coming to this stage, Lord, there's nothing special about this platform. It is a stage. Lord, the people in this audience, these wonderful people, they can come to the altar in their own hearts. God, you don't delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices. You, you delight in a broken and contrite heart. I pray if there is anyone in here experiencing walking through the darkness, that, Lord, you would send your mercy and your goodness to walk beside them, to point them to you, to be able to call out to them things that they're not aware of, God, I pray for the Christian in here who is thriving. God, would you continue to grow him or her in their knowledge of your grace and your truth that they may be able to testify to someone else to the praise of your glorious grace. Lord, for those who do not know you or maybe who are struggling about whether they know you or not, God, would you please, through your word, through the power of your spirit, move in their hearts. Replace the heart of stone with a heart of flesh. I love the promise that you gave to Jeremiah. That if you seek me, you will find me. And I will be your God and you will be my people. 
Not because you're reacting to us, but because that is what you have ordained. And we take comfort and rest and have security in that. Comfort the hearts here who are struggling with that. Let them know that they are loved, that they are created for a purpose, that their life is not meaningless, but that you have done all things and you do all things good. It's who you are. You can't do anything else. We praise you and thank you for this message. And all God's people said, amen.